Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1 Finale, Episode 22, Devil's Trap. Let's get this show on the road. So Drew, final episode of season one, what did we think? I will avoid as much profanity in our recording as was presented in our group chat when I finished the episode initially. <laughs> but if we can, if I can just very generally sum up, a very good episode. I have feelings about the ending that are not positive. <laughs> Don't we all? But I think that's to be, a, I think that's fair to assume. But I really am happy what we got. Hang on to that feeling of being happy with the end of a season. <laughs> oh, too many shows have done this to me, I know. Are you ready to give us a recap? Put two minutes on the clock. Let's get into this. I will count you down. Three, two, one, go. We pick up where we left off last time with the phone call from Meg revealing that she has John and she wants the real cult this time. No more fake outs. They try to lie. She calls him out. And they decide it is time to get on the move because clearly they know where they are and trouble is coming. They decide the only way to do this is to go and try to rescue John. And of course, not bring the cults, hide it somewhere safe. But before all this, they decide they need help. They need to figure things out. And they go see Bobby. We actually get another hunter who gets more than 13 seconds of screen time and lives. Um, although the same can't be said for puppy. I'm sad. But we move past that. We learn a lot of cool things about how demons work. We get to impart some knowledge, uh, very specifically this idea of trapping a demon, which works really well on Meg, who they eventually exercise, unfortunately losing the woman who was possessed, but while getting the information they need to go save Dad. They find John, they rescue him, they use, we actually get to see them use what they learned with salt to combat the demons, and a really great plan to get out. They get John to a safe house, they're all safe, they're good to go, and suddenly Dean feels like this ain't John, something's up. And we find out that it is not John, he's possessed by the demon, the one they've been hunting. And in a final climactic fight, unfortunately, it does get away, but all three of them are safe, albeit quite injured. And they are on the road again, and then terrible car wreck, clearly caused by demon, and end. Boom, 30 seconds left on the clock. Definitely an eventful episode. Yes, it really, it, it's a very clear three-act structure. It's very poignant in what it wants to get across. I feel like there isn't really any downtime, and the little downtime we do get is spent really well. Let's move into the long game quickly so that we can then go into story time together. So if we go with the long game, you mentioned that we finally meet Bobby, which is amazing, like you said, and also a hunter. I loved that. I love that line about how he's a hunter that lives for longer than 13 seconds on screen. Very impressed. Right. And, and also another person that John had a falling out with. Yeah, there seems to be a common thread and I feel like says a lot about John. Like, I think there's a lot that can be read into and we'll get into that, but... And like one of the first things that we hear Bobby say are some pretty ominous words, right? About, about the boys, about their dad, and about the journey that they're on. 
And finally, the last thing that I'm going to talk about in the long game is that we find out a lot more about the mechanics of demonic possession. And that's going to be very interesting later on. Yeah, I thought that was a really, albeit it's taken in a very dark direction with specifically Meg and the possession in that case. It is a very interesting bit of world building, which I feel this episode, funny how this episode I really kind of felt was a conclusion. It really felt like there wasn't much growth or learning or changes on the lore side of things, possession, how to fight demons, the salt, all of that came across really, like, well. It was actually a little, I mean, we can talk about that perhaps in in critical time, but it was, I was almost disappointed to learn all of that at the very last episode of the season. We'll get into that in critical time, because I have, I have thoughts on it, but I see what you mean. With all of that, shall we jump into story time? Yes. So if we start at the top of the episode, like we usually do, one thing that I thought was really interesting at the beginning is that we've seen Dean impulsively putting himself in danger. But here, he's the one who says that they have to go, that Sam and Dean have to go, they have to leave the motel. And we're seeing him again hyperlogical and hyper-focused, a little bit like we had seen him in Something Wicked. And this time, it just... It's, I guess it's because we had seen so much more of John in the last few episodes, but I saw John in that moment. Like, Dean was really relying on the Johnisms to get them out of that situation. That line that he, where he says, screw the job... To mm-hmm. me, it really showed, yeah, right? Like, didn't it just, like, tug at your heartstrings? But again, it's what I was bringing up last episode, too, which is the idea of, like, Dean is losing his faith in John, and John is all about the job. Like, he would never say that if he still felt the way about John that he did at the beginning. It's because their values are starting to differentiate mm-hmm. themselves, right? So we're finally... Where as much as as Dean has integrated a lot of John in himself, his own self that John hasn't tainted, I guess, is finally coming through. And that's where we're seeing it. Again, if you look at it as Dean being a bisexual character, I think that this speaks very strongly of how queer children and queer young adults end up at one point having to, to, to differentiate themselves from their parents because what they were taught is quite different from what they believe in. Yeah, we have a character who, for up until this point, majorly, like, yeah, the occasional slip-up, has really just been a dad's perfect son, even if you, like, there's that whole kind of, like, who is the favorite son moments we kind of get into later with the demon, but Dean has always done everything he can to be, you know, like, yes, sir, to John. He never fought back, even when there was fighting, it was always out of respect or was always to try to like make a point. It was always very much like you're right. I'm on your side. And now we're finally letting him, he's breaking out of a shell. He's trying to be his true self. And he realizes his true self isn't being this pawn. There you go. His true self is not acting on John's behalf. That's just like a really beautiful realization. I think for Dean. So let's continue with, with the brothers. And then maybe we can talk about Meg after. We have this moment where Dean calls Sam selfish. And to me, that was such a direct callback to Scarecrow and the fight that they were having. And I don't know how you feel about that. Like, did, did, that, did it bring it up for you or no? Not right away. I'll admit it was, it was speaking with you and going over our notes a little bit that it really, like, it made the connection. And it feels almost silly that I didn't catch it the first time. I think I was just so ingrained in so many other thoughts at the same time that it was hard to catch. 
And I think the advantage of going back is you're able to look a little more analytically and not have not be as reactionary, which is again why this works so well. This dynamic, because uh, from a reactionary level, it didn't trigger. But for me, what it really brought up was just more of what we've been kind of in tickling around this episode is really just Dean's speaking his truth more. But again, that was also like one of the biggest issues in Scarecrow was that him speaking his truth split them up, and his ultimate goal is to keep the family together. So he stops doing it. So to do it again now shows that he's letting his true colors out a little bit uh, again. Exactly. Exactly. When they arrive at sunrise, Sam is the one who's insisting to check John for demonic possession. So I really liked the difference between Dean being hyper-focused when they needed to get out of danger and then him not being very critical when it came to bringing back dad with them as much as we discussed dean losing faith in john a little bit i think that deep down like almost on like a instinctual level dad is a safety net like as long as john is around even if he's knocked out and drugged up he's around he's not injured he's not dead the day is saved everyone's safe the family's together he can almost i i feel like calm down is the wrong word but he can turn off the fight or flight response. And then it's Sam who can then see that things have calmed down and goes, this is too simple. We have to go the extra step and thus the holy water. That's interesting because I saw, so I totally valid, love your read. I saw it more as the dynamic between the two and who takes care of whom. And you can see, so at the very beginning, Dean is the one who takes care of Sam because Sam is is not in a state of mind to be able to make those decisions. And when they get to sunrise, it's Sam taking care of the of the logical decisions because Dean is not in a state of mind to make them. It's like a weird chain reaction. It's like as soon as John is there, he like almost it's almost like everyone reverts to their younger selves. Like suddenly, yeah. Dad's there. I'm safe. Sam now has to kind of be like independent and that's when he can be yeah. critical. And then when John isn't there, that's when Dean has to take over as the parent and be the critical one. Ooh, interesting. I like that a lot. Wow. Okay. Let's keep that in mind. Okay. They managed to get John out of sunrise and Dean has to use the cult on a demon in order to save Sam. I mean, so we are. So I know we haven't gone to Meg yet as a topic, but we can discuss the fact that ultimately the actions of the boys do result in the death of a woman who was possessed by the demon. I don't know if we ever figured out if her name was actually Meg or not. I, I don't know what to actually refer to her as, but this woman's death is, I mean, ultimately at the hands of the demon, abusing her and wrecking her body and not letting it heal. And in saving her from a demon, unfortunately, she does die. I think that's explained away enough, but I think it still gives them their first taste of like, we took a human life, essentially. Even if it wasn't 1000% directly us, we were critical in that process. And we do see it weigh on them a little bit, and we I do want to talk about that more. But then having it here, one, as a reaction, so it's very quick. That scene went by super quick, and I think that says a lot about what they wanted you to feel while watching it. Because ultimately, it really does go back to what I think is a major topic of this episode. I feel like every scene can be broken down to one of the brothers' reaction is fight, the other one's reaction is flight. 
and this was a very split decision time to fight. There wasn't a getting out of this. There wasn't a smart, let's save the day scenario. This was the, it's him or Sam. One of them's going to die. I have a choice now. So my interest here is more in the conversation that happens afterwards, right? So like, I think you've done like a really wonderful analysis of the scene. And now if we can move to Dean talking about it. And I feel like this is a really difficult scene because it is such an emotional moment, but it's also, I feel like it's thunder is stolen by the fact that this is also what leads us to the eventual John is in John uh, reveal. I almost would have loved to have seen this scene what would really have happened had John been the one speaking and not the demon posing as John. But if we can remove that from this conversation and really just talk about Dean and his realizations. And I mean, technically demon John is right. It really was a split decision. It was a choice of who lives or who dies. There really wasn't another way out of it. They really, his hand was forced. I don't think anyone is debating that. Right. I mean, I think everybody who is watching is very sympathetic to Dean and they understand. Dean is debating that. Dean is debating that. That's exactly what's happening. He's questioning not only his morality, but his humanity altogether. That's the question. Am I, do I have humanity is the question. This is an arc that happens for Dean over the course of the series where Dean starts to see himself or sees himself and defines himself as a killer, in part because it's repeated back to him so often. We haven't seen that yet, but we will eventually. And I I do think that this moment was very foundational in this definition of himself. And I had never really noticed it until now, like that we're really watching it. It just screamed, you know, you're a killer, Dean Winchester. They don't, they don't try to soften the blow. They don't try to, like, minimize what was done, which I think is very impressive and I think really drives home the point of, yes, you did what you had to do, but in doing so, you murdered somebody. Well, it's a departure from what we had seen the entire season, right? Like we had never seen them causing the end of a human life before. The closest we got to that was Nightmare. This is notable. This is important, and we're going to have to come back to it at some point. Shall we move into John Winchester's A-plus parenting? Oh my god, yeah, sure. Let's dive into this nightmare. So first, I have a question for you. Do you remember the moment where Dean goes, you're not my dad, and then there's that, like, dramatic fade to black? Can you walk me through your emotions when that happened? I think I actually have the recording of me watching that, and I think I started to, like, mutter it to myself. As soon as he asked for the gun, I was like, something's up. Something feels wrong. Dean, don't do it. And then, like, you see Dean's realization, and it was sort of like, yes, yeah. I think I think I may have applauded alone in my basement in that scene. Let's never release that recording or tell anyone about it. No, that was legit one of those, like, action movie moments of, like, I, like, was stamping a hand on the desk and going, yes, 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 because it just felt so validating to have Dean, like, figure this out and have that kind of a conflict moment. But then what drives it home even more for me is that Sam sides with Dean. Oh, my God. Okay, wait, put a pin in that because I have, like, such, 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 such feelings about that. Okay, okay, let's put a pin in that and let's talk about John first, okay? Okay. 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 (laughs) I've never been so excited to talk about John before. (laughs) 
Let's remember the iconic line of Dean. He wouldn't be proud. He'd tear me a new one. And this is the moment where Dean voices this realization that John is possessed because the demon possessing him was too fatherly with him. Can I even take it a step further? This is Dean admitting something out loud that he expects John to disapprove of, but instead receives approval. Yeah. Oh, Dean. Dean, who is clearly carrying around this secret about who he truly is on the inside and what he wants to be, but knows he can't say because he expects John to tear him a new one. And I mean, if that just isn't like emblematic of their relationship that he idolizes this man so much that he treats his father like an infallible, perfect human that it takes something else actually pretending to be nice to convince him there's something wrong. You know, I've seen a lot of discourse in fandom about how the demon was nicer than John Mm -hmm. and that that's what led Dean to realize what was happening. And until this moment, I would have argued that the demon actually parented Dean in that moment in a way that Dean probably hadn't been parented in decades and that that's what had made him realize what was going on. But now I'm really leaning. It's the acceptance. He knew he wouldn't get that from John. That he, okay, let's voice this. Let's be explicit about what we're saying. Let's not leave it in subtext. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying here is that if Dean told John something that he knew was going to disappoint him and the response that he got was acceptance, and that's not something that he would expect from John. And so if we're making a parallel to Dean as a queer character, we can then assume that If Dean had ever openly told John about being bisexual, he would not have expected acceptance. At the end of the day, Dean knows this man so well that I feel like even if he were to plan properly coming out to his father, he would do it fully well knowing he's not going to accept it. It's going to put a rift between us. And the next step is then how do we deal with that? Can I pose you a question? Yes, anytime. I feel like after the discussion we just had, it might not be as cl- it might not be as ambiguous an answer, but I'm still curious to gauge your response. Do you think Dean would have caught on to John not being John had he not begun to lose faith in him first? So, okay, let's play that out for a second. So if Dean had not lost faith in John, I don't think that it would change the way that he knows that John reacts to him. So what I'm saying is that even prior to this, Dean knew not to tell John the things that upset him, right? Like we find that out throughout the season, especially in the last few episodes. And so I don't think that his faith has anything to do with this because John is John, no matter whether Dean believes in him or not, which is surprisingly deep (laughs) a thought when you think about it. What changes is the way Dean perceives him, if we can make an an active part of this process, because Dean is now having, we understand that Dean is now, has now been hunting on his own for a little while, and then he's hunting with Sam for a year, and now he's in this situation with his dad, and he is starting to see things differently. So yes, he's losing faith, but he still sees his dad as his, as his dad, and he's actually able to to size him up quite well. 
Now, what happens next is also really interesting to me. And this is what you've mentioned before. Yeah, sorry. I got got ahead of myself. I got excited. (laughs) Yeah, you got ahead of yourself. That's fine. It just shows how excited we both are about this, right? (laughs) (laughs) So it sort of feels in that moment like Dean and John, like, place Sam in the middle, much... (laughs) Much like a puppy or something. Yep. And then they each call his name to see who he goes to. <laughs> and that's basically what happens. They're both like, Sam? Sam? Come here, boy. Come here. I'm making light of it, but this is a really tense scene, right? And Sam hesitates, but he goes with Dean. You know, this isn't really surprising given what we've seen in the season. And I'm thinking back to like Scarecrow and how he abandoned John, uh, abandoned looking for John, sorry, to go help Dean. But in that moment, the doubt was still in my mind. I don't know about you, but I was like, especially with how Sam had been doing mentally and emotionally in the last few episodes, I was like, oh no, like this, this could backfire. It truly felt to me like everything leading up to this moment of how they've kind of reconnected was so, in this moment, at least it would sow the seed of doubt. It did. (laughs) I think, honestly, had the scene, however it would have changed the writing, had Sam gone to John, I wouldn't have been completely thrown for a loop if the same scene happened four episodes ago when we didn't have as much of the bonding time the two of them had. Yeah, if this had happened mid-season, you know that Sam would have picked Dean. Like, there wasn't a doubt in our minds. But now, in that exact moment, I wasn't sure the first time I watched Mm -hmm. it. It could have really gone either way for me. So then, we actually have that moment that you hinted at earlier, where the demon talks to Dean in Dean's inner voice. And this, to me, was so reminiscent of Skin earlier in the season. They almost use the same verbiage, the shapeshifter and the demon. And... So he tells Dean that his family doesn't need him the way that he needs them. And what we can read into this is that he loves them more and more intensely than they love him, which is, you know, that callback to that voicemail that we got about Dean's infinite reserves of love and poor personal boundaries. Mm -hmm. We also hear from this demon that Sam is John's favorite child. Again, we can read into this that Dean doesn't deserve the love of a parent because he's just not worthy of it. And I think the hardest part of that entire moment is I believe the demon. Like, I truly feel like the hero complex specifically within both John and Sam plays a big enough role in their hearts. It really kind of does feel like Dean cares about them more than they care about him. And that sounds really awful when I say it out loud. And I don't think there's any way to say it without sounding bad because they genuinely love Dean. Yeah, of course. Like there is no part of me that doubts that. But I think where at any given moment, if they had to make the choice between Dean and killing the demon, there would at least be a moment of consideration before deciding, obviously family comes first because Dean is more important, but there would be that struggle, even if just for a moment. Whereas I don't think Dean would even blink if the choice was the demon or family, which we clearly see throughout these last two episodes, family comes first. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Because in this episode, we're seeing Dean make a split second decision about killing that demon, 
with the cult, even though he knows that there will be repercussions for this. And keep in mind, at this point, he thinks that his dad is going to tear him a new one, right? Like, we know, we know this. This is textual. And then we have Sam a little bit later, who has his own moment of being able to, to of having to choose between saving his father's life and accomplishing his revenge. Yeah, what it really comes down to in the end is what is the ultimate goal? Ultimately, mm. stopping this specific demon is, yes, revenge, but they ultimately know it's to save the greater good of people. It is to finally put an end to the danger that is stopping them from being a family. And it takes that for Sam, at least, to finally learn that lesson. I thought long and hard about what could be the theme for this episode. And I don't know that I have a an answer that's set in stone or anything like that. But I think that one lens through which we can watch it and try to analyze it is the word that keeps coming to my mind. I know we discussed, I know we discussed it, but I want to go in a slightly different direction. I'm so so sorry. do I. Okay. Really? Okay. Cool. 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 So the word, I have a word that keeps coming into my mind right now and it's the word twist because I mm. feel like there are so many things that change or um, yeah, that flip. I think you're right. I think that's a very good way to look at it. But if I could even take that one step further and say discovery, it's not just a matter of things twisting on you. It's learning something new. It's being something being revealed or learning something new and taking that information in whatever way it comes to you. Ooh, I like that because it also applies a lot to the scene with Bobby, all of the mm -hmm. lore that we find out about. Discovery is both very surface level. They discover new ways of fighting demons. They discover more about the demon. They discover more about demons in general. But also, to even go as critical as we just touched on with Sam, he discovers that there is a line he won't cross to stop this demon, and that is sacrificing his family. Like, it's a twist. You're right. Like, you know, you, you would think that given the order by dad to take his life in order to stop this thing, there's a part of me that seriously believed Sam considered it. I wouldn't have been shocked if Sam did it. Like, I think I would have believed it and have been able to say, like, I'm shocked he did it, but it's understandable at least. So to have him have that twist of him going, no, family first and discovering what family means to him. It brings me back to the episode Shadow about how the theme was th about things coming to light. And I feel like we're getting very close to this. And it's interesting because that was our first time getting dad back, really. It was the first time getting dad back, yeah. There is definitely a critical time or reason for this, and we'll be getting back into it a little later. But for now, let's hone in on that last heartbreaking scene because I honestly I tend to block out that part of the episode because it just really breaks my heart so when Sam you know when Sam is holding the gun to John I always knew that Dean would never shoot John and this is really crystallized in the last few episodes we know that family comes first and Dean makes that decision for himself in spite of what John has taught him and what he knows is acceptable to John Sam I really wasn't sure. Like you, just like you, I yeah. wasn't sure. Sam with his own issues, specifically, you know, his chosen one complex and his deep need for revenge. I just didn't know if he was going to shoot John or not. Like, you know, earlier we had Dean questioning his humanity, but now this is Sam's big moment of questioning. Is he the kind of person who will shoot his dad to get revenge on the demon that killed his mom and his girlfriend? Or is he the kind of person that will let the demon go free to save his dad? And this is such a defining moment. 
like I, I said it before and I'll reiterate here, I genuinely watched that scene and had I been paused and said, which do you think will happen? Or hey, even more, if you had to write the ending with both possibilities, both are completely feasible. Like, like you said, if it was Dean, it, yeah, of course he's gonna let John live. Like there's not even a doubt in my mind. Like the other, the other ending doesn't exist. That's a stupid idea. But with Sam, it's legitimately one, both directions seem completely feasible. And that is kind of scary, but also just it makes it that much more important and validating when he makes the choice. Oof. Okay. That spirit about Sam, that observation that you just made, hang on to it because you're going to need it through, especially through seasons like three, four, because Sam has to make very big decisions about himself in those seasons. Are we ready to move into critical time? Yes, let's. I want to start critical time with an observation that I made that you really enjoy, and I want to just really drive it home. And that is something to do with the way this episode was written, and it feels like the end of a video game. So for okay. our listeners, I'm sure... You, you might not know where I'm going. Some of you might be like 100% I get it. So if I can break it down, the episode really felt like that scene in a video game where it's like the final boss. You're taking everything you've learned, all of the tools and equipment you've earned up to this point and putting them to the test. We even have that moment of like the classic, like here we are at the final battle. Here's a new tool that you're going to need to defeat the final boss in the book that Bobby gives them. It's our, it's the literal trap that stops Meg, who is kind of our first boss fight. Mm-hmm. Which then leads us to a second kind of boss rush or boss fight, which is the Sunrise Hotel. And then finally, the surprise final form that every boss in a video game has to take to really end the fight, which is the demon possessing John. So for people listening, Drew is a huge gamer. I am not. And so this is definitely not something that I could have come up with. But when I heard him say it, I was like, yes, this is exactly what it is. This is exactly what happens when Mario defeats Bowser in the final. (laughs) You have the get to the castle, you beat Bowser, and then princess is in here, another castle, you get to the next castle, you beat Bowser, yay. And then, oh no, Bowser comes back bigger and scarier. I mean, yeah, this is, it's formulaic and it's something I don't feel like many shows have done really like in that same sense, but I feel like this journey the boys have been on up to this point, because again, I need to just have a moment here and go, this is the end of a season. We've reached a season finale. It had a finale feeling so much so because the writing allowed them to take the knowledge, the growth they've, uh, you know, like cons- what they, what they've become the growth they've gone through up into this point to narrate how they act. You know, we talk about Sam making the choice whether or not to kill John to defeat the demon. And I feel like Sam beginning of the season versus Sam growing and being who he is now would have made a very, would make a very different choice. I absolutely agree. I mean, we've discussed this before, so I totally agree. And so We've discussed in story time that there was a critical reason why this episode was so reminiscent of Shadow, especially in terms of, you know, how action-packed it was, a little bit like Mm -hmm. what you were describing earlier. And that's because both episodes were written by Eric Kripke. So I just want to take a moment here 
to list the episodes in season one that he has written to see if maybe there's anything that, mm. you know, we can think of. So I already have thought on this and Shadow being related in that sense, but I'm mm-hmm. curious to know which other ones were very much him that I might find more connections with. So he wrote Shadow. He wrote Home. He also wrote The Pilot. Those are the, th- the four that he wrote on his own. And then he wrote uh, Wendigo and Bloody Mary with two other writers. Initial thought, Bloody Mary and Wendigo do feel different enough. Yeah. But Home, Shadow, the finale, and the pilot on those four episodes is this is someone playing in a world they really, really know. They understand the ins and outs. They understand what every string is connected to every other pin. So they can put everything in a perfect bubble and kind of give us the perfect scene they want to give us. And, I mean, this is Kripke's show. This is his baby. It's It's been made very clear to me. So to have the person who understands these boys the most, who knows things about them that we could never know because he brought them to life, they birthed from his mind, allows him to create these set pieces, these scenarios, these perfect little vignettes that are just idealistic for getting a point across or showing us something. I will gently push back on the idea that he knows the boys better than anyone else because he knows his version of them better than anyone else. And that's just because I am genuinely like a literature pirate in the sense that I believe that the characters and the story do not belong to the author once they're put out into the world. And I know that you agree with me, but it's just, I I just wanted to, to mention that. But Absolutely. And what's really interesting, especially given our conversation about theme earlier, is that I feel like Pilot, Home and Shadow and Devil's Trap all have that idea of like things being brought to light and like Mm -hmm. finding things out that we didn't know before, unearthing secrets, family secrets and things like that. I, and I, I just find that a really interesting thread to follow throughout the, the, the season. Can we talk briefly about Dean calling Meg a bitch? Yes. I mean, I don't have much to say about that, apart from the fact that it, I find it really jarring whenever I hear a man refer to a, call a woman a bitch, basically, on mm-hmm. TV, because this is something that is so, I don't know, maybe I'm very puritanical about this, but like this, this shocks me. And like, this, ju- it's just a word that's so charged for me. That's used really as a way to demean a woman because mm-hmm. of her sex and her gender that I just, I don't like it. It's, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a very fueled word. A lot of swear words, curses, insults tend for the most part to feel gendered, like not to get vulgar or too blue on the show. But can you find me an example of a character calling a female character a bastard? No. I'm trying to imagine, like, just as a weird specific Game of Thrones where they t- use the term bastard in its actual meaning. I don't think they ever refer to any of the female characters who may be bastards based on their birth a- as such. And it's just because, and, and even in modern media, it is very much a male presenting word, if that makes any sense. It just has a very the same way, like, there are very few examples of bitch being used on a male character. And the only times I could think of it, it's not just calling them an insulting term. It's also feminizing them and insulting them. 
Yes, there you go. Exactly. So just in the context of supernatural, there's also a, a history with that word because Dean also calls Sam a bitch sometimes. Well, so Sam calls Dean a jerk and then Dean replies with bitch. And it's something that's played off as playful. And frankly, when I hear it in that context, it doesn't bother me as much. But when he is calling a woman a bitch, there's really something in me that wakes up in a way that makes me very angry. And we know from later, you know, into later seasons that this, that Dean doesn't actually treat women badly. And so this is clearly like a critical stylistic decision Mm -hmm. to make the character appear in such a way. And I think, again, it says something about the time at which this was made, but it's just, it's unnecessary. We don't need it to drive the point home that Meg is a bad and evil character. We do not need to, to, to demean her because of her sex or gender. So the other side of it, though, because I do agree with you, the other side, though, is I feel like at this time, especially with the level of censorship that it was then versus now, there isn't really anything else of an insulting nature that is more neutral that you could call her that would get across the same I'm angry and I need to insult you and I need to, like, let my emotions out at you in the same way. I still don't think they could. They, there's a thousand ways to write around this. But if yes, the script I don't, I don't think that that's for, a good. <laughs> no, no. But I just think in this in this time and in this limited fa- fashion of curse words, air quoting here, because I don't really whatever in this time of television writing and using foul language that was the only thing that would fit. Like, I can't imagine, like, if you were to go back and rewrite that scene and you were forced to put in a derogatory term there to replace bitch, there aren't many others to pick from, which is a problem because language is huge and there should be something. But at the same time, it could have just been written out entirely. You're right. It could have been written out. It could have been rewritten to, you know, qualify her. So to say that she's twisted, that she's evil, that there would have been a lot of other ways to do it without using a derogatory term. I don't see why he has to call her a derogatory term again, because this is one of the rare female characters that we have on this show. Yes, she's evil. Oh, maybe that's problematic. Okay, it's just something that I want us to be aware of because it also sets the tone for how female characters will be treated later on. There you go. I think that's what bugs me. You know, if it was just this isolated incident, I'd be like, meh, whatever. It's just a sign of the time. It's indicative of a bigger problem. Exactly. But in this case, like you said, it's indicative of a bigger problem because this is something that we see again and again. Like next season, we are going to see a lot of use of the word bitch, to qualify, you know, villain, women, villain, females on the show. And it's always something that makes me recoil, frankly. If we move on to something that's a little bit happier, I know that I mentioned that we learn so about so much lore in this episode. Do you maybe want to jump on that for a sec? I, you listed them for me, so thank you. It's easy to get them all together. We learn about demonic possession, and also we also further on something from the last episode, which is the rules of what affect what demons. Yeah. We had the, what was it last time we learned? It was the, oh, right, it was the hallowed ground doesn't affect Meg, but holy water clearly does. And then we get the ultimate, the big demon, whose name is still unknown, who is also Meg's father, it's revealed. Yeah, apparently. That's a, that's a thing we didn't even bring up, but we have, 
this demon who is so powerful that even holy water has no effect on him. Moving on from the the demons and kind of some of the new lore and how possession works, I mean, we also learn that the person who is being possessed is present for everything. We learn that Meg spent a year being possessed by demon and through this time saw all the acts she was being forced to commit. And I I am very intrigued and I I don't know if it will happen. I would love to see that get explored further in the show. Do we get more of that? Oh yeah, we definitely do because then once they re- once the boys realize that it's a person that's being possessed, then the question becomes, well, what do we do with demons when we encounter them? Mm. So that becomes definitely something that's explored a lot more. If we can go back into what you said about Meg being possessed for a full year and that, you know, she says mm-hmm. she's awake for some of it. You know, she says, I, I couldn't move my own body. The things that I did, it's a nightmare. That's really heavy. I think it plays a little bit into the fact that they were able to, because there ultimately is that moment where Bobby does confront them about like, if you exercise the demon, she will die. Like you, like, like it's a little bit of a lore exposition, but really well hidden in a nugget of like a, a true moment, which again, Mwah, writing like yeah, love Bobby love how he's used for exposition yeah. oh gold yeah. Yeah. but I feel like what is revealed to us by actual Meg when she comes to for the small amount of time we get of her before she does ultimately pass away almost excuses the action of the boys in her death because they were putting her out of her misery as Dean put it well, if we can just finish up on the demons and the lore. One, the Devil's Trap, again, cheering when they caught Meg. I was literally, I have the recording going, trap, 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 <laughs> trap. <laughs> like a nerd. I was so excited. But also the salt. Mm-hmm. The, the salt as a barrier to stop demons is something I remember from the show so vividly that the fact that it's only brought up now is shocking. Yes. Do you remember in Phantom Traveler when Rochelle and I were like, oh yeah, the lore for demons changes a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And you're starting to see it because this, what we're seeing now, what we're being fed in terms of lore is very similar to what we're going to get. Nice. So there you go. So yeah, no, I absolutely agree. The salt, the salt is there. We have them salting. We have the devil's trap, which we see time and time again. Uh, we find out about the mechanics of demonic possession, which does change ever so slightly. I'll be curious to see, like, now that I know it changes, I'll be curious to know if I can catch it or if it kind of comes off guard because it's well done. You'll, 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 you'll be my guide for that one. Okay, okay, okay. Would you like to get started? My only real, like, heavy complaint for this episode, like, okay, Yes, I did not like the cliffhanger ending. I don't like a show doing that to a fan base as much as I have the benefit of being able to watch the next episode on my own whim. It still sucks, but I can excuse all that. It's writing, it's TV, it's ugh, whatever. The thing that I would like to change would be giving us more time to really let Dean discover what killing someone means. I feel like his killing of this, albeit at the time possessed person, Uh, the other demon who's about to kill Sam, though we get some depth on it, though it does become part of the conversation, I feel like the scene is poisoned by the fact that it just sort of then shifts to the whole John is possessed thing, that we never really get to go back to Dean and discuss what does that mean? What do you feel? 
What are the consequences of this? And I am sure we will get there. I hope we get there. But I feel like such a critical moment, probably the most critical moment in this episode, in my opinion, and it's left kind of in the dust. How do I even word this? Number one, <laughs> I agree. I wish that Dean had had time to process this immense traumatic moment. One of the themes that comes back a lot in Supernatural is that lack of time to process trauma and how the boys are always in one trauma after another, so much so mm -hmm. that it becomes compounded and that they never really have time to process. And this starts in that moment, like you said, because Dean doesn't have time to understand what this means to him. He's immediately thrown into another trauma of finding out that his father is possessed by a demon. What you're asking for is for Dean to have some decompression time to be able to process his trauma so that he can then integrate it into his life and his identity of himself. And I can tell you that that's very difficult to get in Supernatural. Not that it should, I mean, it should be present, right? It really should be present, but it's not really. So I just don't want you to get like your hopes up about this. That's, that's <laughs> what I'm trying very, to say. I'll be very honest. I think as soon as you started explaining it, it became really apparent. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a recurring thing. You're right. Yeah. This is going to be the world of learning something and then not being able to process it, which I get. And mm. I think is also a very interesting thing to do with a character of forcing them to realize things, but then not have the time to process it and have to learn on the fly or live on the fly. But ultimately I would have loved to have seen even just a little more time with it. And of course, as a crossroads deal, I have to offer something up in exchange. I think I would have minimized how much time we got with demon John. Yeah. Okay. I feel yeah. like, we, we get a lot of interesting things out of it. it. It definitely is a valuable content, but I feel like, like you said, some of the stuff that was brought up is brought up in skin. You know, choosing sides, the realizing it's him, are all things that could have been maybe not done as elegantly if they had to shorten it, but I think ultimately would have gotten the point across. And I think given the choice between more focus on Dean and his feelings about literally killing someone a mm -hmm. an actual human for the first time really yeah versus reiterating things we've already known in a sense via exactly. demon john in a fair like i mean he even makes the joke about monologuing like yes it's great it is so much fun i was like edge of my seat the whole time but it was a lot and i'm sure they could have cut back I absolutely agree. I'm not going to talk back on that one because uh, I agree. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's very true. Um, it's very true. What we knew, what we found out from this scene, we knew already from Skin. We knew that this is how Dean sees himself and we didn't need to have it reiterated. Do you want to hear mine? I do want to hear yours. I, 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 sometimes we go into these and I have like an idea of where you're leaning. I have nothing for this right now. <laughs> I mean, so I could go with the whole bitch thing, but I will not because I know that this is not going to change. So, I mean, I could definitely make mm -hmm. the, the crossroads deal, but I feel like that's just wasting my breath and wasting my deal. So I'm going to go with something Oof. a little bit different. So I wish that Bobby's dog didn't have to die. Oh, I know. That was like, as soon as there's that moment, they look out the door and you see just the chain with no dog on. And I'm like, no. And yeah. they leave the house to go do whatever. And I'm like, 
We didn't resolve that, which, oh no. Oh no, the dog died. Like, the demon mm-hmm. got the dog. Meg got the dog, essentially, is what we're saying. She, deser- she deserved everything she got. <laughs> Incl- <laughs> no, except for the word bitch, everything else she bloody deserved for that alone. I mean, yeah, so it was pretty sad. I mean, I think that the goal, narratively, was to show that, the, that Bobby had to make a sacrifice in order to understand or to crystallize his commitment to the boys. Mm-hmm. So how do we get that sacrifice without killing his dog? And perhaps one of the ways in which we can do that is have him get beat up by Meg. So instead of having Dean get thrown into the, the bookcase, maybe we have Bobby doing that and we see that Bobby is like hurt. So that would be his way of understanding that he will not get out of the boys' life unscathed. Yeah, I think it would have even been more impactful. I think... I think it's pretty safe to say, and the knowledge is there, that nobody likes seeing animals hurt or killed in media. It is, I think it's almost a trope at this point, how, like, you can see a character die, and it's like, oh, they were just a character. And you see an animal, and you're like, your heart just, like, it tugs at you. So I think on that level, it's more impactful in some ways, but at the same time, I think it minimizes what you would have brought to the scene with your crossroads, in that it doesn't really feel like we don't had we known the dog for a few episodes had we known there was a connection between Bobby and this dog which would have made it a thousand times more sad than it already was it would have had the effect of making of showing that Bobby can't be in the life of the boys without being hurt himself but I think you're right having it just really be like pure violence against Bobby in trying to defend the boys and part of their setting a trap thousand percent would have worked better Yeah, and it also fits into the narrative of anybody that they get attached to or that they have emotional attachments to ends up getting hurt. I feel like it would have played a little bit more into that because they weren't attached to the dog in any way, shape, or form, right? Like, Yeah, it was just, it's, it was cruelty for cruelty's sake. It was just like, look how bad this person is. They're doing a bad thing. Ooh. Had there been any narrative up to this point of like, every time Bobby was brought up, it was Bobby and... Uh, what was the dog's name again? Rumsfeld. Yes. Had it been a constant Bobby and Rumsfeld, Bobby, and then the reveal is, oh, Rumsfeld's Bobby's dog. That's adorable. We always thought they were a pair of hunters. And then taking away Rumsfeld, that would have been, one, sadder than it already was, but would have instilled a, like, the sacrifice Bobby has to make. But otherwise, it just feels like mean for mean's sake. Good crossroads. Good crossroads. But it, I feel like it sort of joins back to this whole idea of making look, making Meg look as bad as we possibly can, yeah. right? So she is so evil that she is going to kill a dog, and yet she's not the big bad, right? No. She's just she is portrayed as mean and evil for the sake of it, and I do feel like there's a very strong gendered element there. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Sock Monkey Fly for her tweet. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok using at carryingwayward. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. And until next week for our recap episode of Season 1. Carry on our wayward friends.